Well, Danielle was taking an afternoon nap on New Year's Eve before the evening festivities. After she woke up, she confided to her husband, Max, I just dreamed that you gave me a diamond ring for a New Year's present. What do you think it means? Ah, you'll find out tonight, answered Max, smiling broadly. So at midnight, as the New Year was chiming, Max approached Danielle and handed her a small package. Delighted and excited, she opened it up quickly. Inside, she discovered a paperback book entitled The Meaning of Dreams. Well, I'm hoping all of your dreams for the new year come to pass. This morning, I'd like to share, hopefully, an encouraging and challenging word to our church family as we lean into the new year. Let's pray together. Father, we bow our heads and hearts before you here this morning. We thank you for life. Thank you for breath. Thank you for soundness of mind and body that enable us to gather together. Lord, as this year transitions to a close and we face the the broad horizon of of a brand new year, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and bring your kingdom into our lives in the way that you know we need. And not just us, Lord, that are gathered here today, but those next door in Vineyard Kids where they're learning to worship and serve and grow and change as well. Put power on your word to our lives today. It's our prayer in your name. Amen. While some early historic references to magnification stretch back to the 5th century B.C., the first eyeglasses were actually made in Italy in the year 1286. Benjamin Franklin is renowned for inventing the bifocal lenses in the middle 1700s, and today's glasses have evolved tremendously. They feature... Single vision, bifocal, trifocal, progressive, anti-reflective, aspheric, high-index, photochromic, polarized, or polycarbonate lenses. And perhaps equally important is that they are available with fashion frames from Versace, Tommy Hilfiger, Polo Ralph Lauren, Perry Ellis, Guess, and Burberry to mention a few. Now, I've worn corrective lenses for nearsightedness since the eighth grade. And since the national average age for needing reading glasses is 40 years old, when I was 44 and still getting along fine with my single vision contacts, I was feeling pretty good about things. You know, I'd beaten the odds until I hit 45. When eye strain, difficulty seeing in dim light, and problems focusing on fine print came on like a speeding freight train that I couldn't see. And since bifocal contacts didn't work, and I'm not a candidate for LASIK, I now wear progressive bifocal glasses full-time, for for which I'm grateful and thankful that I can actually see. And I get mine at Walmart Vision, so I'm far from a fashion icon. Now, each of us actually wears another set of lenses through which we view the world. It's called our worldview. Most of us aren't aware we have a worldview, uh, that is, that we're wearing the glasses. We pretty much assume that everyone sees things the way we do. It's reported you never ask a fish about the water it's swimming in because it's largely unaware of it. A worldview is our set of presuppositions about how things work what reality is or should be, what is actual, probable, possible, or impossible. Our worldview is influenced by our race, our culture, 
socioeconomic status, religious heritage, educational and life experiences, our thoughts, opinions, judgments. It's a plumb line by which we measure what we'll accept or reject. It's like a set of sunglasses or goggles that color our world. They color everything we see. Worldviews in a culture are passed from generation to generation with actual little change or close examination. For instance, in the modern Western world in which we live, since the Enlightenment, we've got a scientific, rational framework which assumes order, control, and a materialistic explanation for everything. It's only what can be seen, tested, and proven or measured that is real. Our culture largely dismisses anything cosmic or supernatural. True, while we might say we believe in God, we actually, in the culture, deny the existence of a personal devil, angels, demons, answers to prayer, or the miraculous. And while this is beginning to change at the margins with increasing interest in the paranormal and the supernatural, nevertheless, it's one reason why people in the Western world have so much trouble with the Bible. Our culture's worldview acts as a filter, and it causes people to reject the Bible and anything supernatural as improbable or impossible. Now, even though most of us here this morning or listening on the podcast would say that our lens, our worldview, now accommodates the supernatural realities of the Bible, I'm suggesting that God wants to continue to shape our lenses as touching how we read the Bible and experience God as revealed in the Bible. There is a controlling narrative or theme through which everything we read in the Bible and everything we experience about the God of the Bible passes. And so I want to ask you this morning, what is your controlling narrative? What is the single overarching dominant storyline or theme through which we you you view life, God, and the Bible? And to answer this question, it might be helpful to actually answer another three questions. And here they are. First, if you were asked to describe God in three words, what would your three words be? Secondly, if you were asked to describe the Bible in three words, what three words would you select? And thirdly, if you're asked to describe your experiences with God, what would uh, the three words that you pick be? These nine words answering these three questions, describing God, the Bible, and your experiences with the God of the Bible, these nine words might actually begin to illuminate your controlling narrative, your worldview. Let me tell you my story to illustrate. My early years of church going taught me much about God and the Bible, and and I'd be wrong to underestimate the important truths that penetrated my mind and my soul. And yet in slow, subtle, and powerful ways, I unconsciously began to believe a number of things about God that are simply not true. And since our particular denomination was very conservative, it taught me that in order to please God, I 
had to refrain from worldliness by dressing dressing in a a certain old-fashioned way by cutting my hair with white walls and not owning a television, attending movies, or playing cards, or drinking, or dancing. It taught me that God resisted proud, worldly people, and so I had to be humble, as we used to say, and somber, and certainly couldn't do anything fun. I remember shaking in the pews as old Mike Wynett stood in the pulpit, preaching us all into hell because we were such no-good worldly sinners. Well, the problem was that people are, well, people, and we do what people do. We fail at following religious rules a lot. And as a kid, I I would sneak over to our neighbors, the Dooley brothers, and watch Captain Jinx and Salty Sam on their TV after school. But in the process, I always felt guilty because I thought I was sinning. Consequently, for most of my growing up years, I believe that God was mad at me, and everyone else for that matter, as if he were an old gray-haired man standing at the top of the celestial staircase, red-faced with neck veins bulging, yelling, Stop having so much fun down there! Quit all your sinning, too! The sad but true stereotype, reinforced by the regular rhythm of what I heard weekly in church, shaped what I thought and believed about God. So my controlling narrative, the lens through which I read the Bible and experienced God, was that he was angry, judgmental, and distant. Those would have been the three words with which I answered the question at the time. And then whenever I read the Bible, certain passages that reinforced my worldview always seemed to overshadow all the others. Passages like Nahum 1, verses 2 and 6, The Lord is a jealous God filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all those who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire and the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. Well, that was my worldview, my controlling narrative, my set of lenses. What's yours? God is a distant, removed, uncaring authority figure, a judge, a ruler, a sovereign king who is capricious, and there seems to be little or no rationale for the things he does, or God is a loving father who tenderly cares for you as his child. God is powerful. I I know he can do anything, but I doubt that he's really willing to do anything specific for me, or that God is good. His promises are true and reliable, and you live with a sense of anticipation for his kingdom to break into your life. God knows everything that you think or say or do and is intimately acquainted with your whole life, having planned it from eternity, or God doesn't really pay much attention to most of the details. He wound up the universe, charted out the big events, and then kind of let it go, and, well, it really doesn't matter much of what we do or don't do. God live at the top of the mountain, and it doesn't really matter what road you take to get there, or that the way to God is narrow and difficult, and there are actually very few people who ever get in to his kingdom. You're just a lowly sinner, incapable of ever really living above temptation and prone to self-sabotage? Are you insignificant in the grand scheme of God's plan for the earth, or do you believe that you're significant because God uniquely created you to fulfill a specific destiny here on the earth, that he's got plans and purposes for you, for your life, 
You think that Jesus is a trustworthy shepherd, that he'll lead and guide and protect and provide for you and for your loved ones? Is your controlling narrative that if you obey God, you please him and he blesses you, but if you disobey God, he is displeased and he curses you? You think the Bible is a difficult book to read and understand and apply full of paradox and mystery, intrigue and contradiction, or do you believe that the Bible is simple and clear and black and white, needs little help or aid in its application or understanding? What about living in community with God's people, the church? Is it helpful? And therefore, you're, you're motivated to invest and serve and throw your lot in life in with a group of people? Or does church have diminished value? Been there, done that, kind of heard it all before, and you know, all they really want is my time and money anyway. And gosh, you know, there's a lot of other things that I can do with a Sunday morning. So participation is a low priority. What? are the glasses, the lenses that you wear when you read the Bible and experience God. Well, I'm going to suggest that for 2014, we ask the Holy Spirit for a new set of lenses as we read the Bible and experience God. And to help in the process, I think you're going to benefit from these. And so I'm going to ask Bill and Lamar to uh, to uh, now stand up and distribute the, the, the new custom fashion frame version of 2014 glasses. You'll notice that uh, they have distinctly colored lenses, and uh, you can play your part by putting the glasses on now. And um, while these specific lenses may not actually help the the process of discerning and, and influencing your biblical worldview, they, they may make you quite stylish at the New Year's Eve party you attend this Tuesday evening. And, uh, of course, I can see right now all the cell phone cameras are snapping wildly and we are going viral on Facebook or Twitter. And for those of you listening on the podcast or who happen to see a post on Facebook, if you'd like a pair of these stylish glasses, you can email me, uh, ben.hair at uh, gmail.com or send a stamp self-addressed envelope to the Vineyard Church Peoria, 2220 West Town Line Road, Peoria, Illinois, 61615, and I'll dispatch them in the mail to you promptly. My hope, I guess, is in this visual metaphor is that these glasses may occupy a, a prominent visible spot uh, in the coming year. Maybe you'll stick them in your Bible that you're using for your daily devotional, uh, put them on the nightstand or the table next to the chair in which you sit as you read, maybe on your refrigerator or the dash of your car or your SUV, uh, somewhere where every day in the next year they may serve to remind you of of the examination uh, of your worldview, the set of lenses through which you you read the Bible and experience God. And I think that God wants us to read the Bible and experience him through the lens of love. God is love. And everything he does towards us is loving. He wants us to experience his love in deeper, more powerful ways this year. And he calls us to love others. And so I'd like to now invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, the third chapter. Open your Bible or your Bible app to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read what the Apostle Paul prayed in verses 14 to 19. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he'll empower you with his inner strength, through his spirit, 
then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now, did you catch the Apostle Paul's deep heart in this prayer to the Father? Verse 17, that our roots would grow down into God's love. Verse 18, that we'll have power to understand how wide and long and high and deep God's love is. Verse 19, that we'd experience the love of Christ to be made complete with all of God's fullness and power. Friends, in 2014, let's ask the Holy Spirit that God's love would color everything. God's love would be the lens through which we read the Bible and view the world and experience Him. And that it would align with the desires that the Holy Spirit expresses in this powerful prayer. Now, the Apostle Paul is praying for God's children to be filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And a result of the Holy Spirit empowering of verse 16 is found in verse 17. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. As you trust or have faith in Jesus, he causes our roots to grow down into, here it is again, God's love. And that keeps us strong. Now, we live in the breadbasket of the world. And every year as farmers plant their row crops of corn and soybeans, we see firsthand this very process of the seedlings germinating under the right conditions of sun and moisture. And then we watch those vulnerable seedlings grow, pushing their roots down into the rich black topsoil of central Illinois, where they stand strong against the elements until harvest. And it's the root of the corn and soybean plants that hold it steady and draw nourishment for its growth and change. And so, friends, our roots are going to draw life and nourishment and strength from God's love. It's God's love that's going to keep us strong and unbending to the enemy. Listen, reading the Bible, praying, giving, worshiping, serving others, raising godly children, avoiding sin, sharing our faith, reaching out, that's all good and all necessary but it's tapping into God's love that's going to keep us strong. The Holy Spirit continues in verse 18. May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. So Paul uses a figure of speech, arresting our attention with this metaphor, this this four dimensions of, of space. We, we actually live in three, but he's using four to, to draw our attention to just how immeasurable God's love is. God's love is the most powerful force in all the universe, inexhaustible and never-ending and all-powerful. It's God's love that accepts, affirms, forgives, heals and restores, encourages and offers hope, builds up, says you can, 
answers prayer. No circumstance is too difficult. No relationship is too broken. No sin is too great. No guilt is too heavy. No bondage is too unrelenting. No shame is too strong. No pain too deep. No person too far beyond the reach of God's love. God wants us, in the language of verse 19, to experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Now, we're not just to study about it, read about it, know the theology behind it, mental assent to it, be able to to defend it in an argument or convince a co-worker or a neighbor or a classmate, but to actually experience the love of Christ. And friends, we know that there's a huge difference between knowing about something and experiencing something. You see, we can uh, uh, read about roller coasters. We can study the physics of roller coasters. We can watch YouTube videos about roller coasters. But until you go to Six Flags or Cedar Point and ride the Millennium Force, the Top Thrill Dragster, or the Raptor, you just know about roller coasters, but you've never actually experienced a roller coaster. And there's a huge difference in knowing about roller coasters and actually experiencing them, isn't there? And whether it's the freedom and thrill of getting your driver's license and driving, the joy of eating ice cream, being moved by music or kissing, to experience something is radically different than knowing about something. And friends, the point here is that God wants us to actually experience his love. 2014, I think the Holy Spirit desires that we more fully experience God's love in concrete and tangible ways. Now, next week and the week after, we're going to be talking about how to more fully experience God as one of our church's four primary values. And we're going to suggest a a daily Bible reading plan as one way of connecting with God. And I I might today suggest it would be helpful for many of us to spend much of our time in the next year reading the four Gospels of the New Testament, where we catch the picture of Jesus. You see, if Jesus is God with skin on, which we just celebrated for four weeks in Advent as we studied and celebrated the Incarnation, then we should ask the Holy Spirit to cause us to see and understand and experience God's love more fully through Jesus. And when we read the four Gospels, we see that everywhere Jesus went, he loved people and he met needs. He didn't preoccupy his time with preparing people to die by teaching about heaven and hell, but rather how to live the best life here and now as we experience his kingdom. That's why Jesus said in Luke twelve thirty two, don't be afraid, little flock. It gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. He said in Matthew six thirty three, seek first the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he'll give you everything you need. And then in a crowning act of love, he died for us and was raised back to life three days later to authenticate everything that he'd done and said. So his death and resurrection prove that he loves you, accepts you, and forgives you. Dear friends, 
If you've chosen to follow Jesus, then you're not just a sinner saved by grace. You're a child of God, loved by Jesus. Your sin is forgiven. Everything that you have done, are doing, or will do, forgiven. You've been made new, created in his image, filled with his very presence, precious in his eyes, marked by hope and joy and peace and rest. His nature, it's in you. You are his beloved, and nothing you have ever done or ever will do can separate you from God's love. The Apostle Paul said, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's revealed. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me continue my story for a moment. When I first surrendered my life to Jesus as a college freshman, way back there, 1974, the night of October 29th, room uh, 413, uh, in Babcock Hall, 1030 at night, I was overwhelmed with a previously unknown sense of his love for me. And this revelation grew in fits and starts over the years as the Holy Spirit unshackled me as a conservative evangelical from legalism and religion and untrue things about God. But it really wasn't until I read Henry Nouwen's The Return of the Prodigal Son, A Story of Homecoming, and what Rob Bell unpacked from the same parable in his book Love Wins, that my understanding about God and his love began to turn fully right side up. I refer you to the story of the uh, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Succinctly, the younger son of a Jewish father squandered his inheritance in sinful living, bottomed out, returned home, and offered to work as a hired servant for his dad. The father rejoiced at his return and threw a wild party. The older son, who had stayed behind and faithfully served his father, was deeply offended and refused to join. Now, we, like the younger son, can believe that our badness separates us from God. Or, like the older brother, we can be separated from God's love just as well by our goodness when we mistakenly believe that our years of service somehow earnest good standing or favor with the father. Neither son understood that the father's love was never about any of that. God's love cannot be earned, older son, neither can it be taken away, younger son. It just is. It's as if God the father was saying to to, to both boys, all your deeds mean little to me. You've always been mine. You'll always be mine. I've always loved you. I will continue to love you. All I have is yours. Come and join the party. Contrary to what I grew up believing, the parable teaches that God isn't mad at everyone all the time. His anger was once forever assuaged at the cross. Romans 5, 8 to 9. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us 
from God's condemnation or judgment. Jesus framed it this way. John's Gospel, the third chapter, verses 16 to 17 in the Message Translation. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his Son, his one and only Son, and this is why. So that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. So let's ask the Holy Spirit for glasses that enable us to see and experience God's love as demonstrated through Jesus in these concrete and tangible ways in the next year. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to fill us like Jesus was filled with love and compassion for people. Let's ask him to enable us to love people just like he did, to meet their needs first, to become their good neighbor, neighbors to the people uh, where we where we live and where we work and where we do life. Not to fix people or straighten out their doctrine or religion or to judge them and their complicated, messy lives or to shame or guilt them or point out their sin, but rather accept them, listen to them, serve them, love them, offer deeds of kindness, invest in them, include them in your life and eventually invite them into the real life of his kingdom as the Holy Spirit leads the way. It may prove to be some of the most challenging but most rewarding adventures we ever have. That's why Jesus said, in answer to the question, what's the most important commandment in the law? He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And a second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said in John 13, I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I've loved you, you should love each other. And your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. The Apostle Paul framed it this way in 1 Corinthians 13. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I'd be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. And Paul told his understudy Timothy this in 1 Timothy 1.5, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love. The Apostle Peter said it this this way powerfully in, in his letter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. You see, God's love is so big, so wide, so immeasurable. God's love never gives up never quits, never runs out. God's love never judges, categorizes, classifies. It goes where we would never go. It accepts what we would never accept. It extends mercy and help when we would remain hard-hearted and closed-fisted. God's love is the most powerful force in the universe, setting it right 
again. So in the year ahead, let's ask the Holy Spirit for a new set of lenses as we read the Bible and experience the God of the Bible. Lenses that allow us to experience God's love and share it with others.